This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and this week I'm joined by Irena Musumeci. Hello. Hello. And this week uh, we are going to be talking about Daphne, which arrives in cinemas and on demand uh, today. If you're listening to this on Friday or whenever you're listening to it, it'll be available however you want to watch it. Um, but Irena, first of all, what have you been watching? What have I been watching? Um, so this week I have caught up with the latest season of Transparent, uh, which is currently one of my favorite series to watch. It's, um, uh, it's, uh, it follows the life of a family, uh, kind of fairly wealthy Jewish family in contemporary LA. And uh, if you've been watching from series one, you will know that in the very first episode, uh, the paterfamilias, uh, Daddy, who is a... Um, an academic, a sociologist uh, in his late 60s, I believe, uh, decides to come out as trans to his entire family. Hence the title of the series, Transparent. Aha. Um, it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant study of family relations, uh, but also of, of gender and everything attached to it. It really kind of explores so many different iterations of uh, things that are related to the idea of um, transitioning in a very kind of open, very contemporary way, very fresh way. But it also resonates with, I think, anybody who has trouble uh, relating to their families or their family history. And uh, yeah, so I've really, I'm enjoying this uh, latest season. I've not got to the end of it yet. Yet, yeah. but uh, it's, I, uh, it's I, fun. I understand this one goes on a bit of a I wouldn't say holiday but more of a travelogue it's, uh, it's definitely there's definitely travel involved there are journeys of all kinds and uh, the family um, does take a trip to Israel uh, to kind of um, discover a bit more about where they came from and uh, where they might be headed next uh, much as in every cinematic journey uh, so yeah a lot of it is set in Israel uh, and it's it's quite um, it's quite well woven into the politics of the series as well how they deal with the uh, the existence of, of Israel and uh, uh, it's sort of contradictions and complications I think it's uh, remarkable in its uh, empathy as a series and uh, it really does take in quite a lot of what's going on in the world today so 
it's very very enjoyable i highly recommend it excellent i think i have some it was one of those weird ones where i absolutely loved it when i was watching it and just haven't watched the rest of it and ah. i've seen the first two seasons that's so. that's a shame i found myself completely addicted i started watching the first uh the first season and i just couldn't wait for for the next ones so when this one came on, I think it was last Friday, I just mm. kind of binged on it. And I, I've got one episode left and I, I had to stop myself because I thought, oh, really, I just have to savour it a bit yeah. more. So. You should um, do what Eric Banner and his wife do. Uh, so they, when they binge stuff, they will watch something. And then when there's a cliffhanger or the end of an episode or just any episode, they think, well, if, if we know... If we don't know, we're never going to be able to go to sleep. So they watch the first five minutes of the next episode and then go to sleep and pause it there. Yeah, that seems sensible. It's a good system. I'm not going to ask you, how do you know what Eric Bann and his wife do? We just often chat sometimes. Fair enough, yeah, yeah. yeah. I like to keep updated with them. One of the highlights of my life is uh, is being with you, actually, on the night Rebecca Miller revealed that Danny Day-Lewis really enjoys watching Vikings. Vikings. Yes. I don't think I'll ever top that as a scoop. Me neither. It was probably the highlight of all Q&As ever. (laughs) Excellent. Um, well, uh, the, what what I've been watching this week is actually, well, I say watching, watch many things, but one particular thing is um, John Crowley's film Brooklyn, which is a film that I had the fear uh, where you know after you watch something and you love it and you're scared to watch it again in case you don't love it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, I was not expecting to like Brooklyn, actually, when I first watched it. And it really took me by surprise and just like completely fell for it and read the book and was so into this film. Um, but I weirdly couldn't bring myself to watch it again in that it might not be as nice as I remember it because it was like one of those environmental things where it was cold outside and it might have been in my head it's snowing and you go into the cinema and you've got this like loving warm firelit film uh, (laughs) on a December night and uh, but I I just watched it in a pretty rubbish environment on a laptop streaming um, and it I just loved it and I still love it and I'm so pleased to say that I do Um, and I'm, I'm, it's one of the, it's the film that if I wanted to write something like if I like you know those BFI uh, classics like if ever I could think of something that I'd want to write about right now it would be that film wow. and I still and I don't fully understand why yet either but I want to figure that out that's excellent yeah and what about that feeling what I really like is the surprise of liking a film on second viewing that you mm. didn't like the first time around and kind of realizing how wrong you were. Yeah, yeah. definitely. This happened to me with 2001 A Space <laughs> Odyssey, which I really couldn't get the first time around. And then I, well, to be fair, I did watch it on an Italian TV, small screen, late at night, dubbed into Italian for what little dialogue there <laughs> is. Um and then I finally got to see a properly 70 millimeter BFI screening. And I thought, whoa, okay, I see what all the fuss was about. So definitely I'm, I'm one for re-watching things a lot. Mm. And in fact, I've re-watched Daphne now twice. Mm. And the first time I was very ill uh, on a lot of painkillers and I had to watch it on a laptop um, quite a few months ago now in summer. 
and now coming back to it in September, it's really coming to its own. I really, I really liked it at the time as well, but now it just feels like it's the right time of the year for it. And watching it on a cinema screen as well was a great um, pleasure, really great surprise. Mm. It's a very wintry film, actually. I don't know, I can tell you exactly when it's set, but because of uh, well, let's get into Daphne. Really, uh, Daphne is a, a chef, so her a lot of her lifestyle actually takes place at night, um, yeah. and so we don't see a lot of her daily outings. I mean, it's very much focused on her night yeah. uh, activities. It definitely has a nocturnal feel to it, but it's interesting. I didn't think of it as a winter film. I thought of it as an autumn film. But then you could say that because it's so much of a London film mm. and we have these kind of crazy seasons here that are bent nondescript <laughs> and indistinct. Uh, I mean, today I'm wearing a T-shirt. Two days ago I was wearing a woolly scarf. Um, it, it does capture the sort of sense of what time of the day is it, what time of the year is it that you can get in London when you get absorbed into your life on a daily basis. Mm. And um, to me, it really feels like uh, a great London film, uh, you know, in that tradition of uh, certain films that I always associate with the city, uh, particularly there's one that's my probably my favourite London film, which is Wonderland by Michael Winterbottom, um, which I think... Daphne refers to in quite a lot of different ways that we can go into. Well, it's it's not a it's not a London film in an international sense. It's not driven by landmarks and hearing London calling on the soundtrack, oh, God, no. which is I think has done been done twice in films this year alone. Yeah, um, it, I think there's only one wide shot where you could see Canary Wharf. It's actually it's quite an it's an insular London that you you it doesn't like force uh, force you outside of it like, even if you are watching this in america or something it's recognizably london without putting you in a tube and putting you on a red bus and getting in a black cab yeah it actually feels a lived in london not a one through a lens and there's definitely though some landmarks that most uh contemporary 30-something Londoners will recognise, such as, I think it's, it must be Ridley Road Market at the beginning. There's a lot of Dalston, a lot of kind of East End uh, areas, which are recognisably the kind of the Brooklyn of London, I think. And uh, perhaps the, the film is very knowingly riffing on uh, things like the, the settings for girls, um, I'm thinking of another uh, film that this film kind of put me in the mind of, which is Margaret, uh, right. which also has this Kenneth kind of Lonergan. brain. Yeah, the Kenneth Lonergan film. There's something, there's something about the, the atmosphere uh, of Margaret. Uh, Margaret is a film in which, um, which was made in New York after 9-11. And uh, it sort of tells, it's a character study, a little bit like Daphne, of a young woman who is a bit cynical, a bit detached from emotions. And then she witnesses this kind of um, shocking event, which is not a kind of, it's not 9-11, it's not a worldwide shocker, but it's a small, everyday kind of traumatic experience of the kind that can happen to you in a city. Uh, and something very similar happens to Daphne. And both films kind of then take this woman on a, on a slight journey so yeah. to go back to that um idea and do something that to them that changes the way they interact with the yeah. world um it's not a major earthquake kind of thing but it's kind of the small earthquake which has deep 
ripples for me. So the, the, I see a real parallel between Margaret and, and Daphne, but also Margaret has this kind of non-touristy New York uh, feel to it in that no Baumbach way as well. So it seems to me that there's a there are some there's certainly a kind of urban subgenre uh, yeah. that, that Daphne is operating in. Um, we haven't really said much about the plot. Well, that's re- so all we kind of get given is that Daphne is a chef, but she's in the in the lower ranks of her kitchen. She's not the kitchen porter. She's I think making dressings. I can't remember what the correct name for that is. Uh, sh- I don't know. She's below the sous chef. Um, I think it's like gravies and uh, th- there is a word for it, but I've, I've forgotten. Um, gravies and dressings and salads and that kind of thing. Um, and I think most of the money that she earns from that kind of um, once the rent is paid, it's going on booze and that seems to be a regular occurrence probably most nights getting thrown out of places oversharing with people that have maybe she've just met um and i think it's there's a deconstruction of this um this kind of early early season of girls tiny furniture uh identity of the young city woman mm. um and it's touched on i think um in in gone girl weirdly the idea of the cool girl and it kind of presents the ingredients of a cool young woman in a city of, oh, yeah, she's working in a, in a, what looks like a very cool kitchen. And she's going out and she's in nice bars and she's shopping in nice markets and she's buying what looks like a good amount of cheese. <laughs> um, um, and it's then actually deconstructing the the recipe for that. And actually, that's a quite a, an isolated life. Uh, as a chef that can actually be really demanding it's not all uh, the loneliness of the long distance chef though. No. Um, there's a lot of um, sort of scenes as we were saying quite nocturnal set in bars where she picks up a number of guys she's very attractive and she's kind of cool and I think her cool attitude you know of being quite a cynic doesn't care not interested in love she just wants you know a kind of fun night with a guy who may or may not bring some drugs something like that um Something that the film does quite interestingly and quite well for me is uh, not attaching to relationships the idea that that's going to be the key, that's going to save you, that's going to take you out of this loneliness, Uh, which I think is, uh, again, quite modern, but quite brave. I don't think girls ever quite went to that place. Um, We have this character of David, who in in any other film that would be a described as a romantic comedy yeah. he is ultimately the savior yeah there's a in fact that there's something that reminded me of appropriate behavior as well in the kind of uh, you know two random strangers meet and they spend a night and something might happen and then nothing happens in a way and she kind of she's able to leave him mm. too uh, and he's quite needy and clingy and i found the representation of the guys in the film quite interesting as well so the the first um I think in the very first few scenes, she is hanging out with this guy outside the pub and he, as they're kissing, he pulls out his phone and she says, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just taking one for the lads. And he's taking a selfie to show off that he's pulled this, this girl. So you kind of think, oh God, you know, but we've all met this guy. Mm. <laughs> uh, if it wasn't a selfie, it was certainly some kind of uh, uh, memento uh, that would be taken back to show to the lads. Uh, and uh, like him, there's quite a few guys who are just sort of a bit 
too much, mm. but not in a kind of, again, uh, full-on threatening way, more in a sort of, I don't really know what to do kind of way. Yeah. Um, and then there's this really interesting relationship between uh, Daphne and her boss, um, who at one point does say, I'm in love with you, you know that. Uh, and yet he has a family and he's not able to do anything about it, but he seems to be really generally caring. And he's the one who kind of tells her to shut up and put an end to it, or just kind of, he's the one who kicks her out mm. when she's misbehaving and really puts her into her place. And there, there's a feeling that something like a relationship against the odds might develop, and it never does. And I actually really admire the film for it because life is not like that. You may be deeply in love with somebody, but they have a family and it's not possible to run off and make everything perfect just because someone said that they love you. Uh, so I, I thought it was quite, a, um, quite an unusual and qu quite a realistic portrait of uh, a certain life um, mm. that, that made sense to me. And I think there are some nice little jabs at the trope of the stalker man of rom-coms as mm. well. And your Ryan Gosling's in La La Land, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's this, this character of David uh, kind of references like... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online, and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Making multiple phone calls or running after her and she just flips him a finger and it's great yeah. actually it's really this nice rejection and it's, it's this self-ownership that is ultimately the journey like the relationship that she's trying to find is with herself yes but there's also uh, you mentioned Ryan Gosling I've just remembered a really there's a really good film <laughs> where she's trying to feed him is it fried chicken yeah Sorry. so she's drunk buys a bucket of fried chicken and sits in front of a computer just going do you want some chicken, Ryan Gosling? <laughs> and just pushing this... And you can see the bits of chicken breaking apart on the screen. <laughs> and it's all flaky it's... and greasy. <laughs> it, it also all fits into Daphne's uh, per perception and point of view that love is just an illusion mm. to bind us all together so we will all propagate the species, which she takes from... Her numerous uh, and continuous reading and fandom of Slavoj Žižek, yes, uh, which is also one of those tropes of kind of millennial, uh, millennial Londoners, millennial people in the world who are uh, influenced by kind of popular philosophy and critical theory as a mode of operating in the world. Um, but she does call him a donut as yeah. well. Which <laughs> Which, you know, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> Slavo Zizek, yeah. there you go. Um, she also says that whenever I do coke, 
I think about Freud. <laughs> <laughs> of course, but who yeah. doesn't? Um, but it's it's funny also that these jabs are kind of. Um, you know, I read critical theory, but I don't believe in psychoanalysis. Um, all kind of comes out in the wash when she's uh, going to see the psychotherapy that has been uh, allocated to her by the, uh, is it the victim support program? Yeah. Um, so when this particular event happens in Daphne's life, she has called the police and she's involved in this, as we mentioned, shocking event that we're not going to reveal fully. But as a result of this um She's then put through the mechanism of the, the British police system and she gets a phone call from the victim support officer who refers her to a psychotherapist who is there to help her with any kind of trauma that she might have had from it. And now, because the event itself wasn't this cataclysmic thing that you feel you might need to go into therapy for, initially this relationship and this having to go and see a therapist feels like another kind of comedy setup. And the first time she just kind of walks off on him going, you're not going to analyze me. I don't need this uh, crap. And then, of course, at some point she does go back to him because she realizes that she can actually do the conversation with someone who is outside all of it. And he seems to be the person who says to her, you know, you can live in a different way. It's possible if you mm. just let things in a little bit more. And that's, you know, she then says to him, oh, that's surprisingly good advice. Yeah. And it is. And uh, it's also quite unexpected because there I was expecting the, the kind of the psychiatrist thing to turn into comedy again, and to turn into this kind of Woody Allen-esque, oh, doctor, what, what, what does this mean? Mm. Uh, and it doesn't. And he says something really valuable to her, which is that sometimes even if you feel disconnected from things, you can still act on them and you can still do something that is the right thing and it, it matters mm. your actions count and they may not count here and now in the moment to you but maybe one day they will maybe something that you have decided to act on today will have ripples later on and that that small but very very precious thing is what really made the film for me because mm. it's it's sort of it's not um conventional kind of realization oh god my life must change but it it does make her do something very small for her mother which probably means an awful lot to the mother it doesn't mean very much to her and yet she's incredibly moved by the end yeah. of it um well there are there's this value in in put in little actions and there's a there's a meal at the end that's actually really lovely to watch and i think this this idea of food as a a creator of communal spaces is really nice and that that she's been a chef and effectively been always on the outside of that mm. that she's she's a feeder so, and she's giving this goodness and this conversation and this life to people in her work and then when she, you see her eat at home she gets takeaway in she goes and buys a bucket of chicken and eats it by herself and come the end of the film you see her in this environment where she's actually sitting around a table and um, for one reason or another, she's not. She can't actually engage properly in the conversation. Mm. And it's more about just the fact that she's sharing this experience with someone. It feels really lovely. Yeah, I think uh, there's also tiny details, like for example, the times when she's cooking for herself, uh, which you would think, oh, probably she doesn't put any effort into it, but she does make herself a really nice meal once. Mm. And then there's another time when she makes something and then she just chucks it in the bin. Um, 
So there's certainly some kind of narrative related to the idea of what you get out of it, what nourishment do you Mm. get out of, of, well, obviously specifically food, but given that she is a chef, there's a great um, symbolic meaning to it. Um, I want to go back to the scene with the delivery boy because that's something that actually made me... Uh, made me giggle uh, in that there's a there's a great um, representation of multiculturalism in in London, but also there's a there's a kind of comedy about it. So this guy turns up with her takeaway, and she kind of goes, "Oh, you know, I haven't got enough cash. I'm kind of you know, I'm two quid short, but I'm good for it. It's fine. Off you go. God is great." And he goes, "Yeah, I'm not Muslim. Thank you." And uh, and he goes, uh, "Whatever." And he's kind of used to it. And you think that's sort of a little throwaway joke mm. but it, it's at the same time made fun of that sort of knowingness oh yeah I'm gonna be friendly and I'll say I'll make a comment but it's completely misplaced and out of out of order really yeah. but he just kind of goes yeah whatever he's, yeah. he's totally used to it so there's a that's something that I found really unproblematized in a mm. way because um, it's also part of London living and that does you know all kinds of different people, which is mm. great. Um, and um, yeah. Also really good swearing. Really good swearing. <laughs> yes. And swearing with gusto as yeah. well, like properly delivered. This is like a level close to Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast <laughs> amount of swearing. I would love to, but someone calls someone a cheesy little something uh, <laughs> and it's delivered in, in such a way. Uh, it's just fantastic. Well, there's something very magical about English swearing as well, mm. which I think is uh, well. This is I, uh, it got me thinking of the the kind of the New York films we were comparing this to, and I don't know if you you ever get kind of swearing in those films in the same no, way. They just don't they, they curse, but yeah, they don't really, there's not that there, sort of sophistication. Of there's it. more, and there's an annoyance and a frustration in that in cursing but this is just yeah uh, it's, it's like pure emotion and anger just being let rip in three words <laughs> it's fantastic to hear yeah i don't think i i can't think of a um of a british film that that um does the same kind of work as daphne it feels to me like it's really riffing on on these american things mm. which is quite an interesting sort of new influence and yet it does feel very much in this kind of moment for British cinema, don't you think? Or, or is that something that I'm sort of seeing retrospectively, perhaps? Because we've had, we've had Lady Macbeth, we've had um, God's Own Country, and it feels like there's there's quite a lot of new, fresh British voices coming to the fore. So the director of Daphne is a debut filmmaker, Peter Mackie Burns, uh, scriptwriter. I think is also Londoner, but it may be Italian. And the producer's Italian, which is also quite interesting. Because mm. uh, I, I think she's she mentions at some point that that's her heritage as well, yeah. isn't it? She's English Italian. Yeah, but there's there's this sort of you know fresh kind of sense of Britishness and British voices in British well, cinema. I think a lot of the time, maybe English an uh, English independent cinema can get um, divided down the middle in that it's going to be kind of a stuffy period drama or it's going to be Ken Loach and yeah. there's not actually any middle ground in between and maybe that's the area that we're seeing more films being made in yeah because I think definitely certainly these three films I mean Lady Macbeth is a is a period drama only in so far as it has costumes in it mm. and, and is set in the past and uh, God's Own Country is uh, not anywhere in the sort of kind of straightforward social realism but much more in the kind of Andrea Arnold sense of 
yeah. where you can tell a realistic story about a yeah. real place with much more depth to it than simply the observational which there's, i think there's maybe a bit more hope coming around like mm. if that's what we like I, th- I think maybe that's what a lot of the time when you when you see stuff parodied it's like bbc4 and it's just like <laughs> condensation the documentary and just just very deadpan um serious drama or documentary about working class life and isn't everything hopeless and no mm. one's going anywhere um and that, i think in the like lady macbeth although it's quite dark it's, it's a very empowering film as well yeah. and it's quite um did you find um daphne a kind of as a man did you find daphne an empowering film for women or what did you think um i think sorry to put you on the spot no I yeah I think in the end I did I think it did actually I think it had issues with her reliance on relationships and how valuable those relationships were to her and how destructive they were but I think ultimately it had to show them for her for us to realize that they're no good and that there is this idea of yes um like taking ownership for yourself and your body and um doing what you want to do but ultimately realizing that there is a danger in that Mm. and i think there is yeah some issues in some of the relationships that he had but then come the journey that she's gone on by the end of the film that's justified yeah well i i do think that the lack of moralization of her sexual promiscuity if we want to see it that way is really good uh i think you know she's free to pick up guys do whatever she likes and uh what's what's problematized is very much the kind of human connections that go with Mm. that it's not so much the fact that she may be sleeping with this guy one night and another one the next night uh and I, i found that really quite yeah as i said refreshing and really quite empowering and very contemporary you know we shouldn't be here saying oh isn't that good that they did that it's very much what i see most of my friends do or rather what i used to see most of my friends Mm. do because i'm slightly older um but yeah there's certainly i think the the point of view of this film is quite um it's quite feminist in a sort of positive and interesting way and i I really appreciated that. I also really loved the opening credits. Uh, oh, the title cards. Yeah, the title cards. And I, I really like that shot where she's kind of going down the um, well, I the thought... escalator and you see her face reflected into a tiny little well, I think fragment. It, I, I'd like to think it was intentional. I think there's some real graduate moments. Yeah. Um, and there's at the start, she's sitting amongst all these tropical plants, which I thought yes. like, that's the hotel. And then you've got yeah. this graduate, uh, it's the airport shot or the Jackie Brown shot. Yes. And I think that is the escalator as well. And exactly. I, that, that is the, that's a very similar journey that we're going on here, but ultimately with perhaps a better ending. Yes. And the graduate also has that kind of thread through it. What are you going to do with your mm. life? What are you going to, now you're a grown up. What are you supposed to do? And I think that's very much a kind of core question in Daphne. And what I really found empowering was that she finds the answer to that herself. Yeah. And she doesn't find it in anybody else. Uh, and I um, think what's of the millennial generation uh, is that that point in your life where you are meant to be asking yourself that question is coming later and later. Mm. And people are having that ability to ask themselves that question later and later. Um, and 
it's you don't know whether or not she whether it's just been a delay tactic but actually i do kind of get the impression that career-wise she is actually in the nice position of knowing exactly what she loves Mm. and it's it's quite nice that that's not actually part of the drama in a way that this is more of a social thing and it's about finding her place in the world outside of work which is so often the question that we're given in these films as with the graduate the what you want to do with your life that's directed purely at work yeah I think that's that's changed uh, socially, hasn't it? And that today work isn't the only thing that you can do or should do. There is so much pressure to uh, make sure that people are fulfilled in all kinds of different ways. You know, you're meant to have a good relationship and you're meant to have a house and you're meant to have kids and you're meant to have this and that. And so where things may once have followed one from the other, you have a job, then eventually you'll get married and you settle down and you buy a house and you have kids things are happening at slightly different times today and I think that's really reflected in in this film and that's why I I think I found it so recognisable and uh, yeah, I think it did a very, very good job. And and it's not like it sews everything up. It's it's more left to maybe close a few things emotionally to open up a lot more pathways. Yes, so we're ready Um, for Daphne 2, the sequel. Yes, Electric Boogaloo. (laughs) Um, Right, uh, we must end there. Uh, If you do want to watch Daphne, is Curzon Cinemas now. It's also on Curzon Home Cinema, so do check out both of those. Um, And both of those, watch it however you like. Watch it in the cinema, and then on Curzon Home Cinema. Watch it twice. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and uh, do stick around next week, uh, because we're going to interview Kate Taylor, one of the programmers of the London Film Festival, to talk about the eclectic range of films that are going to be playing in the city um, as well as some of the Curzon Artificial Eye films that will be playing too uh, and you can look forward to a few London Film Festival specials where we've got a lot of interviews and a roundup as well coming over the next few weeks so I look forward to you joining us for that uh, until next time it's goodbye from Arena. goodbye and it's goodbye from me goodbye <laughs>